0: Welcome to How My Country Works, with your host, Stephen O'Shea. Next up, located in Asia, with the capital Dhaka, a population of 166 million, and functioning as a parliamentary democracy, is Bangladesh. In 2021, the country of Bangladesh celebrated its 50th anniversary as an independent nation. Since becoming independent, first from the British in 1947, and then from Pakistan in 1971, the country has seen huge economic growth. The country now hosts the second largest garment industry in the world, and its GDP per citizen is greater than its geopolitical siblings of India and Pakistan. In many respects, this growth has come in spite of the country's politics, rather than because of it. Bangladesh has flipped from military rule to civilian democracy over this time, and the political system remains dominated by two warring parties, both with hints of corruption and autocracy. But how is it that one of the most densely populated countries in the whole world remains a notable democracy and growing economic force? In order to dive a little bit deeper into this and the historical and political climate of Bangladesh, I'm joined on the show by Dr. Ipshita Basu, Senior Lecturer in International Relations at the University of Westminster. Dr. Basu, welcome to the
1: show. I'm looking forward to telling you whatever I know about Bangladesh.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm sure you're a lot more well-versed in the country than I am. But perhaps we could start with the founding of the state and the independence that I just touched on.
1: Well, you could say that Bangladesh has two independence days. (laughs) There's one in 1947 and one in 1971.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Can you tell us about that first one to begin with?
1: It's one in 1947 when you could say in haste because India and Pakistan were separated and borders were drawn up very hastily. And of course, religion was one of the main reasons for drawing up the borders. So it was uh, going to be Pakistan, which is Muslim majority, and India, which is Hindu majority.
0: Right. So as the British leave, they divide up the region. And that's why Bangladesh and its people get bundled in with Pakistan, because they're both majority Muslim areas. But the two aren't even geographically connected, right?
1: What happened is a very sort of curious situation where you have one part of Pakistan, which is West Pakistan, which is current Pakistan, and then you have East Pakistan, which is current Bangladesh. And between them, you have the whole landmass of the Indian subcontinent. So they're separated by thousands of miles, right?
0: Right? That's mad. I had no idea. So apart from the obvious geographical issues... Why is it that this arrangement doesn't work out?
1: What happened, though, is that although religion was the main reason for separating these countries, over time it became clear that wasn't really the main driving force for the citizens of these countries. So just being Muslim was not really their only identity. And really what created this separate state demand from Bangladesh was actually two things, the economy And the second was language.
0: What do you mean language?
1: I mean, most often people talk about language and say, you know, that Bangladesh, the term Bangladesh, half of it, the first half of it is actually the language, Bangla. That's the language that people of Bangladesh speak. And Desh means country, right? So Bangla, the language and country. So the country of Bengali people.
0: Right, of course. Because Urdu is the official language of Pakistan, but not what the people of Bangladesh speak. And then what's the economic
1: side? The West Pakistan, which is the Bangladesh side, started feeling like an internal colony of Pakistan because all the administration, the bureaucracy and the military was centred in present-day Pakistan. But the most profitable economic activity was in the Bangladesh side.
0: Okay, so basically West Pakistan is making the money and East Pakistan is keeping it alongside the centres of power. I'm kind of starting to see why this didn't hold together.
1: You know, there was no public revenue in Bangladesh. They were suffering with no roads, no electricity. So it became very clear to people that they really hate us. You know, they're not going to, you know, sort of do anything for us in terms of, you know, even as a government.
0: Right. So Bangladeshi people start agitating around this mistreatment. And then there's an election, actually in 1970, where the Bangladeshi parties are pretty much denied an opportunity to even form a government. And this is then the spark that prompts the War of Independence, right?
1: That created huge public protests, which eventually resulted in a civil war. And that civil war ended very violently in December 1971, when Bangladesh was created. So 16 December 1971 is the day Bangladesh became an independent country.
0: Right. But I think it's worth calling out just how brutal this civil war was. It left over a million people dead and many more as refugees and partly only came to an end with India intervening on Bangladesh's side. But unfortunately, the instability doesn't end with peace for the country. It then goes through a period of military rule.
1: Yeah, so that's... You know, it's had like sort of a potted history of, you know, military and democratic regimes. You could say that it's partly because it inherited a military regime, right? So if you look at 1971, when Bangladesh came into being, in 1969 was the first ever democratic election they had. So, when in 1971 it becomes a separate country, the original, you know, the party that took on the leadership was the Awami League. So, before this, they were like, you know, people were calling them a guerrilla movement, but they were basically, you know, a protest movement for a separate state, right? And they become the main party in 1971. And the Awami League leader, Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, He was very popular as a freedom leader, but he spent most of his time in exile in India because obviously, you know, the Pakistan government, you know, would have killed him if he was in Bangladesh, because he was their main leader. So when he came back, he had a vision for Bangladesh. But obviously, you have such a, you know, you're not on a stable ground, because it's, you know, there's a strong army. And Sheikh Mujib didn't like being criticized much. So he was also showing very sort of authoritarian tendencies. And he declared that they would become a one party state with its own army backing it.
0: Wow, that is very authoritarian but even then the military still looks to take power how does this happen with sheik majid in charge
1: they killed him and his whole family oh wow And that's when military dictatorship returned to Bangladesh, 1975. So you have to see this as a sort of a continuation of a state system that they inherited from 1947, from being part of Pakistan, where the foundations of democracy were very weak.
0: Right, of course. It just didn't have the democratic foundations necessary. And this military rule lasted until 1990. How is it finally broken?
1: The real force in the 1990s was a people's movement, which was actually done largely through international pressure, through donors, right? So NGOs got involved. And the interesting thing is because these NGOs were backed by donors, they couldn't go around and tell people that, you know, you should choose this party or so. They sort of created this mood where they sort of educated people on the importance of democracy and how that would be good. And Ishad, as I said, wanted to have that legitimacy. So they went on and he declared that, yeah, we will have an election. But the NGOs, what they were doing is they were trying to educate people indirectly in terms of who they should vote for. And at that time, in the 1990s, uh, well, just before 1990 election, Sheikh Mujib's daughter, the only survivor of that family that was assassinated, you know, had reformed the Awami League party again. So indirectly, the NGOs were sort of saying, try this party out, you know, if opens out for election.
0: Right, okay, so it's kind of a mix of the military trying to claim legitimacy with an election, and non-governmental organisations educating people around the importance of true democracy. But then it's actually Khalida Zia who emerges as the winner of the election. She's the wife of a former assassinated Prime Minister, and is actually still the main opposition leader to this day. Can you actually tell me a little bit more about the current political system?
1: You have to see Bangladesh as a country which has very bad governance actually. Because <laughs> even though since nineteen nineties it's remained a democracy, more or less, there is no trust in public institutions. There are two main parties. There's the Awami League, which is led by Sheikh Mujib Rahman's, you know, surviving daughter, right? Sheikh Hasina. And then there's the Bangladesh National Party, which is led by Azir
0: who we touched on a moment ago. But why is the system so bad then?
1: When a party comes into power in Bangladesh, the common phrase for them is the winner-takes-all approach. So once you come into power, every public institution is controlled by the party in power, right? And the opposition has absolutely no place.
0: So because there's only one chamber, the Jatiya Sangsad, the winner of any election every five years instantly controls all the levers of power and uses that to hold on to power and keep the opposition from having any influence. This is quite different from many Western democracies where even opposition parties often have a voice and influence.
1: How bad is it? I would say that in the last couple of years, it has become more heightened. So, for example, right now, most of the opposition leaders are in prison. So when the last elections took place in Bangladesh, the Awami League, of course, won, but it won with pretty much no opposition because most of the activist leaders were in prison. The media is, you know, really controlled. So I think that winner-takes-all approach has come to such a point that you could say the Awami League remains the sort of undisputed only political party in action at the moment and the BNP you know it's also made mistakes because it's boycotted elections it's really not taken part opposition has not really taken part in you know democratic functioning because a democracy is you know it's not just about winning elections it's about you know constantly having deliberation even in opposition right
0: absolutely surely this current setup doesn't lead to good government though
1: the heart of this is corruption. So Bangladesh, you know, in the early 2000s was declared as the most corrupt country in the world.
0: Wow, really? I guess because there's no empowered opposition to keep the government in check. So with all of this, how is it that it's been a relatively successful nation? Then?
1: When it comes to its economy and its NGO sector, it's done extremely well. And that's because it's got this very... I mean, when it comes to the economic side, it's got a very strong lobby of businesses, garments, service sector, all of that, which has managed to continue despite poor governance. And the NGO sector, of course, you know, has been very pioneering.
0: Right. So just like how the NGOs were influential during the fight for democracy, they have also helped notably with economic growth. And this has helped pull millions out of poverty. But how do ordinary Bangladeshi people feel about their government?
1: One of the curious features in Bangladesh is that whenever an election takes place, it's one of the only countries where at the time of election, you have a caretaker government that comes into power. And they oversee the whole election process so that, you know, the party in power doesn't kind of overtake the whole, the democratic thing. So that's the institutional side. But what's very interesting is that that happened in Bangladesh in, you know, it's happened a couple of times. But in 2006, when the caretaker government came in to oversee the election, interestingly, the donors sort of said, let it stay for just a little longer because, you know, this is a time to clean up Bangladesh right? But people were not happy with that. Even though it was a government that was, you know, backed by donors, it was going to clean up both the parties, leaders were put into prison, or they were being checked on corruption charges, people were not happy with this caretaker a government backed by the military. And what it tells us that For Bangladesh, this demand for democracy is quite deep. People feel that, look, we'd rather have a democratically elected government that's pretty bad (laughs) than go back to, you know, the NGOs leading us or the army taking over or donors taking over. Because ultimately, you know, this idea of being able to vote and the vote counting runs pretty deep.
0: That's incredible to hear that passion for democracy. But aside from politics, what's an event, celebration or festival that's important in Bangladesh?
1: You know, that's one of the most fascinating things about Bangladesh is its festivals. The first is around its national identity. So there's the 21st February, which is celebrated as their Language Day. And since 2000, UNESCO has, and actually this is something that Bangladesh pushed for, and UNESCO accepted, it's also International Mother Language Day. So 21st February is very important for Bangladesh, but also for the world.
0: Wow, how interesting. Any others?
1: But the others are also cultural ones. And very interestingly, these are Eid which is obviously, you know, a Muslim festival. But there's also their New Year, which takes place in April, and it's called Poila La Boishak. And It's a very, very colourful festival. Yeah, so these are their main sort of festivals.
0: <laughs> I love the variety of them all. Thanks so much for that, and for chatting us through everything around Bangladesh today.
1: Thank you so much for this session, and, and good luck with your podcasts, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. One or two more to go. Well, I think that's a perfect place to end the show. Thanks so much to my guest, Dr. Ipshita Basu. Join us next time where we'll be exploring the Caribbean nation of Barbados. As always, please do rate us on your podcast app and recommend us to any friends that have a hankering for political knowledge. Follow us on Instagram at HowMyCountryWorks for extra insights and facts. And there you can message us around anything else you'd like to know about Bangladesh or any other country. This podcast is produced by Stephen O'Shea and the sound editing is by Ashley Brown. See you next time and remember to keep asking how my country works.